Welcome to Compassion Compass. While most of us recognize that treating others with compassion is important, many of us struggle with turning the compass of compassion toward ourselves. We live in a society that encourages us to beat ourselves up in order to get ahead. However, this only leads us to feel more anxious, insecure, and disconnected. In this podcast, I make a space for honest and vulnerable conversations about the self-compassion journey in order to help you, dear listener, orient your compassion compass inward to meet yourself with unconditional understanding, kindness, and support to better weather the storms of life. I am Dr. Regina Lazarovich, a clinical psychologist and your host for today's conversation. Can you let go of the mindset one day you'll win? Can you let go of the mindset that it has to be filled? Can you let go of your That's a race I'd like to win Can you look me in the face a bit? Hi there, this is Regina. First of all, I am so grateful and excited to have you join me for the first ever episode of Compassion Compass. This project was over a year in the making and has truly been a labor of love. I wholeheartedly believe in the important and beneficial role of self-compassion in navigating both the large and small challenges of our lives. It is my sincere wish that this podcast be of benefit to you. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to today's guest, Eric Zimmer. Eric is the host of a wonderful podcast called The One You Feed where he interviews people about how they keep themselves moving in the right direction and create a life worth living. His podcast was named in iTunes Best of 2014 and called one of the best health podcasts of all time by the Huffington Post. In today's episode, Eric and I discuss his reasons for starting the One You Feed podcast and the parable of the two wolves, Eric's on-the-spot strategies for working with his bad wolf, how self-compassion played a critical role in his recovery from alcohol and drug abuse, what helped him to navigate a painful divorce, and the difference between pain and suffering. And now, welcome to the show, Eric Zimmer. Watch me fall in now watch me. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, Thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad to be here. So, Eric, I would love to know why you consider self-compassion to be important in your life and in the work that you do. (laughs) I think I've heard that ending (laughs) phrase before. Um, Well, I think that self-compassion is important because I think it's the best way for us to deal with the challenges that come to us in life that we're all going to have. I think we all, life brings challenges, life brings troubles. And I think self-compassion is 
the best way to deal with those because two main reasons. One is that I think it allows, it's a thing that makes us feel better, right? It, it's a less punishing, it's, it's just good for our mental and emotional health. And then I think secondly, it's because I think it makes us a lot more effective in what we do. If we want to make changes in our lives, I think self-compassion is a better way to make changes than just, um, you know, berating ourselves into making change. Yeah, um, I absolutely agree. Um, and that's also been uh, more and more backed up by research, right? Research on motivation shows that self-compassion is a much better uh, motivator um, and is much more effective than self-criticism. Yeah. yeah, I was talking to a uh, Buddhist teacher the other night and he had something in his book that I thought was interesting in it. And I think it speaks to this very directly, but he was saying that if you want to make a change in your life, if you are critical of yourself every time you're not a hundred percent successful at that, you start to associate that negative voice with the thing you're start, you're trying to change and you just want to avoid it all. It's, it's similar, I've, you know, I've noticed in meditation that my meditation changed a lot when I went from, you know, everybody's mind wanders off when my mind would wander off when I went from, damn it, it happened again, I need to go back to it, towards really sort of celebrating, like, you, you, you caught it, like, good job, you caught it, right? Because then I'm training these unconscious processes in my brain to look for when I wander off. But if every time I wander off, I chastise myself, I'm, why is my unconscious self going to want to recognize that? Because who wants to, it's like, you know, come here, come here, come here. Let me, you know, every time I go in for a hug, you slap me. And so I think it's, I think self-compassion is, like you said, much more effective. And, and I can look at my own life in the things that I've changed, whether it's been building exercise habits or, uh, dealing with depression or conquering addiction or any of those things. I think that when I have been nicer to myself, I've been made change much more easily than when I was saying I'm a piece of you know what. Yeah, yeah, I that makes total sense. And I, I also see that with my clients, um, you know, that I work with, that berating yourself is uh and identifying with that and as you're kind of hinting at and becoming conditioned um, to associate um, the things that you're trying to do with uh, that negative, critical, shameful experience will just make you um, not motivated and will make you disheartened. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. And, and another thing I'm thinking about, you know, as you're speaking about meditation, um, you know, that concept of gentleness um, and also kind of congratulating yourself, actually, when your mind wanders off, because that is where the actual practice lies. Um, and so kind of expecting that we are not perfect um, and kind of getting back to what our intentions are from a perspective of wanting to benefit ourselves without that unrealistic expectation. 
Yep. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Eric, I, I want to actually speak a bit about um, you. Um, and one thing that I love um, about you is that your podcast, uh, the one you feed, um, was born out of your own kind of curiosity and also desire to keep yourself moving in a positive direction. Um, and that through that process, you are actually benefiting others. By wanting to benefit yourself, um, you're benefiting others, which is, you know, wonderful. And, and I guess this would be a good time for you to say a bit more about your podcast, um, its name, its origin, the parable. Sure. The podcast is called The One You Feed, and it's based on, there's an old parable that, you know, very, in a very short version says, we've all got two wolves inside of us that are kind of at battle with each other. One is a good wolf, one is a bad wolf, and the wolf that wins is the one that you feed. So that's the premise of the, at least the first part of the show, I ask all my guests that question. And then we just use it as a place to discuss how to create a life worth living. You're right that I started the show uh, to a large extent because I felt like I needed that sort of constant reminder that I wanted to live my life in a certain way. I just know for myself that when I'm when I just am kind of coasting, my brain doesn't go to the healthiest of places. You know, I was a homeless heroin addict at one point. So clearly my brain is capable of taking me to pretty bad places. Um, and so even though I don't think that that's where, you know, I didn't start this because I was like, God, I'm afraid I'm going to be on the streets again. It was more of left to my own devices. I start to think about um, what I don't have instead of what I do have. I start to think about what's bad about me versus what's good about me. I start to think about what's bad about you instead of what's good about you. Um, I start to become very focused on external things like money and looks and all the things that is sort of culturally all around us. I buy into the culture more than I wish I did, but I just sort of do. I sort of go on to this autopilot and it's not, it doesn't, doesn't serve me well. And so, you know, I started the show to a certain extent because a, I thought it sounded like a blast, like I'm going to read these books and talk to these people that I've always admired. So that sounds fun. Um, and then I figured, yeah, if I've got to talk to somebody every week, then I'm going to read their book every week, then I'm just going to be immersed in this sort of thinking and that that would be good for me. And it turned out to be absolutely true. Yeah. So it sounds like you had a strong intrinsic motivation, right? That this was going to help you be the person that you wanted to be um, and that it's been working out pretty well so far. But I also love that you didn't have kind of an outcome expectation that your self-esteem or, you know, self-image wasn't tied to the outcome of having the podcast be a success. Um, would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I think that's something that I always have to keep an eye on, right? I started it with 
you know, my motivations were, as I said, I think this would be good for me. I think it would be fun. And my best friend is an audio engineer and it means we would get to spend more time together because we just weren't seeing each other a lot as you get to be an adult and kids and all that, that, that friendship starts to take a back seat. And I didn't like that. Um, of course, there's a part of me that at the same time was like, I hope lots of people listen to this and blah, blah, blah. And it's turned out that lots of people have. I think we've been listened to, you know, over, I think, 10 million times at this point. So a lot. Um, so I have to watch that now. I have to watch letting ego creep into it. Um, because for the 10 million listens that I've had, you know, uh, maybe Mark Marin gets that in two episodes or something, right? So then you start to go, well... What about that? I'm not, you know, or boy, I'm not as big as that show or that show. And so it's important for me when I start walking down that path to come back to my original motivation. Yeah. And I want to actually hear more about that. So I guess we can call that the bad wolf, right? As you know, you're kind of personifying him as that part of you that, you know, tends to compare yourself to others and tends to um, want to kind of go for these external kind of markers of validation, like status or how many people listen to you, right? So can you give me some on-the-spot techniques um, of how you work with that when that shows up, when those kind of bad wolf thoughts show mm -hmm. up for you? Well, like I said, I think f when it comes up, when it comes to the show, those bad wolf thoughts almost always come up in the form of a negative, right? It's not enough status. It's not enough listeners. It's, you know, and so, like I said, for, for me, then it's, I go back to why am I doing this? What, what, what was my original motivation? And when I do that, I go, okay, well, I've been wildly successful then with my, my original motivation. I think that if you expand that out a little bit from just a podcast, right? So because the podcast is one way in which those things happen, but we all deal with comparison in all aspects of our lives, right? Whether it's money or looks or status or all the things that we talked about. I think I've gotten better at it to some extent because I think as you get older, that just happens. So some of it, I think I'm just going to, I'm going to chalk up to being older. Um, so I can't give myself credit for that. Um, but I think that the rest of it for me is it's how do I deal with thoughts in general that I perceive as negative or not helpful might be a better way to think of them. You know, what do I do with thoughts that aren't helpful? Right, and, that don't serve you. Mm -hmm. Yep, and so, I mean, I've got a variety of different techniques. You know, I usually just start with, if I recognize them, I try and just say, well, what, go back to what is it that I'm doing? You know, where am I in the current moment and what am I supposed to be doing instead of thinking about how I'm not tall enough, right? What would be the thing that I could then do? And what, so what is it I'm in the process of doing? And I go back to that if I can. Now, sometimes I may not be doing much of anything or sometimes that, that whatever I'm doing isn't enough to bring me off of what the, that thought pattern is. And so then I start sort of progressively going through, uh, 
you know, stronger medicines, I suppose, to, to work through that. I think that I've been very focused lately on the idea of getting out of the conversation in my head as often as possible about just whatever that conversation is, but trying to come back to now and the present moment. And that is such a cliche. And yet it's so incredibly useful and true. And it's also incredibly hard to do. If you, if we don't have a strong meditation or concentration practice of some sort, we're not very good at keeping our mind on anything, let alone something as potentially boring as the current moment. And so I've learned some different techniques that I think are helpful to me. You know, one of them for me is to, it's an exercise called, I don't know what it's called. I call things, but I try and think of, okay, what are five things that I can see right now? You know, in my present environment, you know, notice five things. What are five things that I can hear right now? And then the last one is, you know, what are five things I can feel right now? And I don't mean feel in the sense of emotion, although that could be it, but it's more tactile. Yeah, I think that one's called grounding in your senses. At least that's how I refer to it. when I. There you go. Grounding yeah. in your senses. That's a better name than five things. But it's I find it to be remarkably effective because it does bring me to the present moment. But there's enough of a... Um, there's enough structure to it that it gives me something to do. If I just go, all right, I'm going to be present. I just kind of, I'm there for a second and then my thoughts are gone. Cause I don't know what to do. What does that even mean to be in the present moment or to be here now? I think it can be very nebulous. So that exercise is very helpful for me. Another I'll do is to try and notice all the colors I can. So I'll look around and be like, all right, let me see all the instances of red I can see. Okay, let me see all the instances of blue that I can see. Again, it's just a way to kind of come back to the present moment and give my brain a little bit of something that makes it stick around. So, you know, that's one of the things like move out of that conversation in my head. And if I can, I like to move out of the conversation in my head into being present to what's happening. So another approach is a little bit more cognitive, you know, sort of based on cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's to start to question my thoughts, to look at them and ask, are they really true? So if I have a thought like, you'll never have enough listeners as a podcaster to, to make a full-time living doing it, then I can stop and ask myself, is that a true question or is that a true statement? Okay. I Maybe, maybe not. How do I know it's true? I don't know it's true. Okay. Am I making some sort of inference, which I am, right? I'm projecting out into the future. So sometimes I'm able to question, you know, just simply look at the thoughts and question them. And that can be very helpful sometimes in breaking, breaking loose of a pattern. If I can recognize that the thought pattern I'm having is not accurate, sometimes that can free me from those thoughts. The the other approach that I will use is we talked a little bit about being in the present moment. Some of that is about feeling what I'm feeling. Recently, I've been doing this little idea that um, we all have, well, I think we all have, right? These, these 
things that play in our head. These, you know, I, I've heard them referred to as like old tapes that play in our head. And I've got some of those. Yeah, we all have got, them. <laughs> and I've got one that's fairly dramatic, right? And it's the it's the the one that makes a big deal out of everything. Like if I my back hurts, all of a sudden my brain will be going, God, my back is killing me. It's I mean, I can't take it. This is just constant. You know, my back is killing me. Right. And I've stopped lately and started saying to myself, how do you know that? Like very specifically, like, how do I know that my back is killing me? And so then I go and look at the sensation. And almost always when I look at the sensation in my back, it is way better than whatever dramatic story is playing in my brain. I can also do this emotionally, right? I have these thoughts in my head like it'll say like, I'm so depressed or I'm so lonely. And I'll stop and I'll go, how do I know that? Like, what is it that's causing that thing to play in my head? Where can I find that emotion or sensation or feeling, but it's another way of coming back to the present moment and seeing what is triggering that. You know, I, years ago, I'm a, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict. And this time I've been sober about 11 years this time. I've had a couple, couple different trips, but this one's been about 11 years. And for a couple years after I got sober, I would just hear this start up in my brain. God, I need a drink. I really wish I had a drink. I want to drink, you know, I mean, where is that coming from? What is happening? And what I realized was that almost always happened when unconsciously I started to feel overwhelmed or I felt like I didn't know how to handle a situation. So it was very helpful for me to stop and go, I want to drink. Okay, well, how do I know I want, like, what is it? What is that? What's behind that? And in that case, I recognize it almost always as being slightly overwhelmed or not feeling like I knew how to solve a problem. And now, thankfully, I want to drink is gone, but it's it's replaced by, I mean, something that sounds far more dramatic. I mean, it was, it was just more like, I hate my life. I hate myself. I'm like, well, settle down. Like it's, it's, they happen very quickly. So I'm not trying to make it sound like this. I'm constantly morose because it's not at all. But I'll hear that in my head. And so I can stop and go, well, how do you know that? Like, what is it that's causing you to say that? And again, it's for me, it's usually the overwhelmed, not able to solve a problem. Mm. And so that I can then I know, OK, here's what's happening. I can do something with that. So that's a version of coming back to the present moment and sort of investigating like what's under the voice or the thought, which is sort of cognitive and kind of not because I'm also looking very emotionally. I'm looking at where do I feel it in my body? You know, how do I know I'm tense? I'm so tense. Well, how do I know I'm tense? Like, where am I feeling it? Like really trying to notice it. And it just interrupts the process. And then, you know, the last thing, or, you know, the, the, the last class of strategies, I would say, you know, I'll just call change the channel. Um, I've gotten so much better at this, but I have a long history of being a ruminator, right? And rumination is to me, and I think it is to, you know, defined as you just think, keep thinking the same thing over and over and over again, and it's not going anywhere. 
it's important to think about things that are problematic in life, right? It's like, okay, I've got a problem. Let me think about how to solve it. But at a certain point, it goes way beyond that. And it's just recycling the same thing over and over and over again. And with what I've learned about the brain and the idea that, you know, what, what fires together wires together. The more often you think something, the more likely you are to think it in the future, right? You're creating these pathways through the brain. I hit a point where I was like, you know what, when these certain patterns come up, I'm going to try and interrupt them. You know, some of the ways we just talked about, which are, are different, but if I can't, then I'm going to change the channel. I'm just not going to let that pathway go on any longer. And so a couple of things I'll do there is one is, um, I call it, I think I call, I don't hell knows what I call it. Um, but I'll start with the letter a, and I'll try and think of something I'm grateful for. And then I'll start, then I'll go to the letter B, you know, a for, you know, that I get to be on an airplane and B, you know, I got to take my son to a basketball game, whatever they are. Right. You can also do this if you're, if you're feeling too grouchy to be grateful. Um, it works with songs too. I'll think like, what is a song that starts with the letter A that I like? And then I'll try and hear the tune in my head. All I'm doing is again, giving my, my brain something else to do. Something else to concentrate. Because if any of you have tried this, you're thinking like, oh God, I've got these negative thoughts. I'm going to think about something else. So you think about something else for about four seconds and then you're back. And then you think about something else for four seconds and you're back because whatever those thoughts are so sticky, they're so ingrained. So it takes something more than let me think about something else. It needs something that is, you know, I use the word sticky, but these are concentration games, right? They give my brain something else to do. The gratitude one is great because I'm sort of, you know, killing two birds with one stone, right? I'm changing the channel and I'm trying to think of things that are grateful, you know, that I'm grateful for. I may not even feel it that much, but it's an exercise. So I like that one. And then when all else fails, I literally will do anything that will distract me. That's not destructive. You know, if putting on the TV, it will, will stop that thought pattern that I've recognized is so destructive, then I'll do that. Um, something to be careful with, right? Because we can end up living our whole life hiding. But for me, this is after I've done lot, I've tried lots of what I would consider, you know, healthy coping strategies. And sometimes I just need to turn the brain off. And so that was a long explanation of some of the things that I do when those sort of negative thoughts about status or comparison or any of those things start. I, I sort of work my way through a series of thought exercises until either those thoughts go away or I decide that thinking is altogether a bad idea for me right now and I try and find something completely else to do. Yeah, um, well, thank you. It sounds like you have a great menu of um, coping tools and m mindfulness seems to be um, a foundationary one, right? Because before we even can respond to the thought, we have to catch it and notice it. Um, and I'm curious to know 
sort of when you do notice these thoughts or if let's say you try to distract yourself and the thought pops back up um how do you meet that right is is there gentleness in that because i find that sometimes people can get harsh with that part of it so i want to hear more about your experience yeah i think that meeting it with gentleness is important um there's a spiritual teacher i really admire who said the the quickest way to shut down consciousness is to judge something and I think that's kind of true across the board, really, really resonated with me. So if we think of mindfulness or awareness as a kind of consciousness, right, the surest way to shut it down is to start to judge how you're doing at it, right? It's right. just you're. And so, again, like I said earlier, I think that being more gentle or or self-compassionate is useful in that, A, it really works better, and B, it's just more enjoyable. So if, for example, we said, well, you know what, if you're just a real, you know, a-hole to yourself, yeah, it's unpleasant, but boy, is it effective. Then I might go, well, okay, you know, maybe there's a time, you know, there's a tool for every job, right? Maybe there's a time to trot that one out. The problem is that it's neither. It's neither effective nor enjoyable. So it's, it's just not... It's just not a useful skill. So I have to just remind myself of that. And I don't know, maybe having been, you know, uh, you know, when I, by the time I was 24, like I said, I was a homeless heroin addict and I had committed all kinds of crimes. I mean, I just had done a lot of terrible stuff. And so maybe I learned through that process how to forgive myself. I don't know. Um, whatever reason over the last X number of years, I have not found being really hard on myself to be that, that pervasive with me. I think somehow I learned that lesson, um, that, 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 that causes suffering and can be really painful. I can still get into it, but I fairly quickly can sort of talk my way out of it. And usually I just think about, and people I coach, I talk, to them all the time about this because a lot of people do have that really awful voice. The way I think of it is just like, how would you talk to a friend? And I think this is a useful thing because most people go, oh, well, a friend would just be nice. Well, kind of, right? So let's say, for example, uh, I go to the doctor and the doctor tells me I have high blood pressure. And I go to, and so, I, you know, he recommends that I exercise regularly to do that. And I go to a friend and I say, Hey, you know what? My, my doctor says I've got high blood pressure. I should exercise more. You know, could you help support me in that? And they go, sure. So if I called them one day and they said, what well, did you do your exercise today? And I said, no, I didn't. I did X, Y, and Z. A good friend is not going to say, you dummy, you always do that. Why do you always not do what you're supposed to do that's good for you? You're so lazy. You're so this, you're so that. Right. A friend would not say that, which is often what our brains will tell us. But a friend would also not a good friend would also not say, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. They take a middle ground, which is, OK, I want to help you to achieve this. I know it's important. You asked me to help you. So I'm going to be 
kind, but I'm also going to be firm or I'm going to hold some accountability. And I think that's the voice in our heads that's useful. Because we either go to, I'm such a jerk, I always do this, or who cares? Everybody does it, right? I think that most people I find are on one of those extremes, and sometimes we flip-flop, but we're usually either way too easy on ourselves or way too hard on ourselves, and neither of them is very effective. What is effective, I think, is to be somewhere in the middle, which is kind, but also, you know, firm and holding, you know, ourselves accountable. I think that's the, that's the tone I try for when I'm dealing with internal conversations related to change. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so kind of not, uh, a good or loving friend wouldn't be, um, just kind of letting you off the hook for something that you know they know is important to you but they also would know that motivating you through harsh criticism would just not be effective um yeah and yeah. they just and you know a friend just wouldn't talk to you that way that's not what friends do ideally right. i mean <laughs> yeah 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 if we if our friends talk to us as the inner critic does um you know we'd probably not be friends with them right yeah yep. yeah I'm wondering, Eric, you know, how did you come to realize that relating to yourself in this more compassionate stance was better? You know, kind of, yeah, what brought you to that in your life? When did that start shifting for you? Boy, that's really tough for me to know or say. I can remember the earliest instance of that I'm sorry the earliest instance of it that I can clearly remember is the second time I was trying to get sober. And I remember I remember I don't know why I remember this but I remember being in the shower and realizing like I have got to quit drinking, right? And I was being so hard on myself because on some level internally, I knew where this was leading. You know, I, I had been, I had been sober for about nine years and I started drinking again and I just knew where things were going and it was not a good place. I was every bit as out of control and in trouble as I was when I was 24, except I was drinking instead of doing heroin and I had a lot of money and I didn't have money then. Internally, I was the same as far as control. So, I just, I don't know where I remember or why I remember having this conversation, but it was just one of where I was being so hard on myself and I just went, wait a minute, I don't think that's helping. And so I just worked to change the conversation into one where instead of me being the, the perpetrator of all these awful crimes, I was... I don't want to use the word victim because that's not, I don't, the right word is not coming to me, but that I was going to give myself some compassion because I was locked in the grip of a pretty difficult thing, alcoholism. And so for whatever reason, once I made that change, I've in a relatively short period of time found my way back into sobriety. 
It wasn't all because of that change. There were a lot of different things, but I do think that that was helpful because the minute I stopped castigating myself for it, I could start to look at it and I could start to look at it honestly. And it's back to that idea of the quickest way to shut down consciousness is to judge. You can, you can see this at work externally with people. If I go to someone, let's just say I went to somebody outside of me who was an alcoholic and I said, you were an alcoholic. You're ruining your life. You're ruining your kid's life. You're, you know, this is terrible. You're a disaster. That person is going to immediately shut that down. No, I'm not an alcoholic and here's all the reasons why, right? If I do that self to my, if I do that to myself internally, a similar process comes up, a similar defense process comes up. But if I approach myself very differently, then I can look at it for a little while. You know, I can, I don't immediately shut down the defense mechanism doesn't come up. I can actually look at the situation and go, well, yeah, maybe I am an alcoholic or boy, I am, boy, that's really things I'm doing. I don't feel good about. And I, I have some, I have some ability to look at it. And so I, that's why I think one of the reasons why I think being self-compassion internally works way better is because we give ourselves enough space that we're not having to be defended against even ourselves. And in order for us to make change, I think we have to see the truth. We have to look at that truth a fair amount. And it's, and most of us won't look at the truth if that's way too painful. And not that seeing the truth isn't painful, but we make it a lot worse than it needs to be. So I don't know when exactly. That's the first time I can remember that idea of being, you know, a little bit kinder to myself internally. Yeah, yeah, I can see how and why that would be very helpful. And this makes me think of that distinction between um, shame and guilt. And I think uh, I'm thinking of Brene Brown's distinction between the two terms uh, where, you know, guilt is, oh, I, I messed up, I made a mistake, I, I, you know, maybe even a bad mistake, maybe I stole, maybe, I, you know, I hurt myself or someone else um, and that's helpful because then you can kind of look at that learn what you need to learn from it see if it lines up with your values and the person you want to be and then intend to do better and commit to doing better in the future right that's useful but shame is you know not I made a mistake mistake but I am a mistake right? I am messed up. I am hopeless. I'm stupid. I'm, you know, whatever um, identification with that bad self. And if you buy into that, you're not going to believe that you are redeemable in any way, right? There's not going to be even a space for wanting to change, right? If you're bad, then you're not good, right? It's very black and white as well. And if you were to you know, poke at it and ask, well, have I ever done anything that was considerate? You'd probably be able to come up with something. 
so it's also not true that labeling that bad mm-hmm. self labeling um and it's also not actually effective in um helping one move in the direction of being the person that they want to be um and it sounds like that that really resonated in your experience yeah it's funny i have been looking at these ideas so long that like when you said shame versus guilt i went all the way back to like john bradshaw in like the mid 80s saying stuff like that so i'm like brene brown um but the point is really a good one right it is the difference and i think it's for me recovering from alcoholism and addiction this was a crucial one right because if i just thought that i was that flawed then recovery doesn't really work very well right i had to recognize like yes i did a bunch of you know fairly horrific things but that doesn't mean that i am bad right and so right. there i think there was a lot of time in my life sort of spent on that idea and understanding the difference between guilt and shame and i agree 100% i think guilt is a very useful emotion if like you said if if it's used in a way of being an indicator to me that i don't like the behavior that i'm engaged in i think guilt often is important with guilt to recognize do i feel guilty cuz i really don't think this is right or do i feel guilty because I'm externalizing someone else's ideas of what I should or shouldn't do. I think that's an important distinction. But once that distinction is made, I think guilt is really incredibly useful because it's a guidance system. Right. I I agree. You know, um, kind of asking, is the guilt justified? Meaning, um, you know, when I step back and look in the situation and check it, the facts um, against my values, um, you know, is the guilt justified? Um, Eric, I, I am wondering about a time in your life when you were most in need of self-compassion. Can you speak about that? Well, I've talked about getting sober. I think that's probably the biggest one, right? I think the amount of things that I did at that, you know, that I had done at that point, I needed some, you know, I needed a lot of self-compassion in order to get past that. Um, But since we talked about that one, maybe I'll talk a little bit about the failure of so a failure of my first marriage um sure so i was uh my son was about two and a half he's he's all grown up now um but at the time he was two and a half and my wife came home one day and said um i'm seeing someone else and i want to you know i want to end this marriage and so I kind of fell apart. You know, it was, I, you know, I was in as much pain as I can ever remember being in, um, was some of it was letting go of where I thought I had screwed things up to cause that. 
But more of it was just recognizing that like I was in a really difficult spot and I needed to be kind to myself at that point. Um, so I think that was the, that was the other place that I probably needed it the most that I just needed to, I needed to be kind to myself and I needed to really watch out for all the things, you know, that I was going to layer on top of that. It's funny. I'm writing a chapter for a book right now and the subject is pain versus suffering. Mm, yes. And, um, I was just thinking about or sort of writing about this example a little bit because the pain was obviously that my wife left me and I wasn't going to be around my son every day. But the suffering that I started layering on top of that was avoidable. And the suffering is things like no one will ever love me or, you know, the reason she left is because that guy's richer or taller or more handsome or whatever that is. My son's going to grow up and be a drug addict like me because his parents are divorced at two and a half. I mean, boom, 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 boom. Everything else that I was adding on top of the pain itself. And so some of the self-compassion for me was just like, all right, stop. You know, let's try and not follow those thoughts down a rat hole. Now, I was not was not as good at it at, the, at that point as I am now. But I think I recognized, like, I think the self-compassion I mostly gave myself at that point was I realized I really needed help from people. And so I asked for a lot of it, and I got it. And so I think that was the other time that I probably needed self-compassion. And, and I think some of that self-compassion was also to let myself feel just as awful as I felt for as long as I felt it. Because it's funny, I came out the other side of that experience and it feels like it's clean now. Like when I came out the other side of that, like my ex and I, we get along great. You know, my son turned out fine. When I think back to it, it doesn't hurt in, you know, in the way of certain things in my life that I didn't really go through or deal with or allow myself to really feel all the way feels like they're still there in some way or so for example you know I, I might you know that in that situation I think you know a breakup of a relationship triggered all the other breakup breaks up <laughs> all the other breakups also like I'd never really dealt with any of them in a in a deep sense and so every time something like it happened, boom, all that came up. And I felt in like that case, I just really gave myself the, if you want to call it self-compassion, to just really hurt, you know. And I guess maybe some of it was giving myself the self-compassion. Some of it probably, at least in the early point, was I didn't have any choice, right? There wasn't, I didn't have any coping mechanism that was going to turn it off without going back to drugs and alcohol, which I didn't, you know, I wasn't going to do. So, um, so I think that one was, was one for me and, and that being willing to allow myself to 
you know, cry as much as I needed to cry, write as many angry letters as I needed to write and tear them up. But really going through that instead of just going, all right, get over it, buck up and move on. Because like I said, I think I came out of it the other side in a really, like the first time I felt like, yeah, okay, I dealt with that. I handled it well. I feel good about how I handled it. I feel good about how I dealt with it. And it doesn't hurt anymore. And I'm not going to drag that through the next 17 years of my son's life by having his mother and I be a problem. Because boy, is that, you know, talk about destructive to a child. So, so there's that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your openness and vulnerability. Um, I'm sure that many people Perhaps everyone can relate to heartbreak, um, but specifically when it's a family and there's a child involved, um, it's, it has an extra layer of difficulty. Um, it sure does. Yeah. Yeah, and it sounds like that the first thing that was helpful is just opening to it, just allowing it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I don't know that in the early days it was a choice. I don't think I was like, well, I'm going to go ahead and open to this. Right. I think I just pretty much got my doors blasted off. But, um, you know, any door that was going to keep anything out was now fully open. But at a certain point, there was a conscious process to say, all right, don't shut down around this. What helped you with that? Because it sounds like your earlier pattern was to run away from pain, to numb it out, right, with substances. What, what, would, you, whatever. what would make you think that? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think I've taken the avoid pain to some pretty deep extremes. Um, I think there were two things I could speak to. One is Pema Chodron, who's a Buddhist nun, and she wrote a book called When Things Fall Apart. Yes, I and, love her. Um, yeah, and so that book was transformational for me because it really was about embracing what was happening, not running from it, opening up to it, and and being with it. So I think that was a big one. And then the other was, um, a therapist I started seeing who was, you know, I mentioned John Bradshaw earlier. She was very into that sort of family of origin therapy, you know, getting, you know, getting to the bottom of what was really going on. And so there was a lot of encouragement from her and she had a group of, uh, she had a group of people that got together and, and, you know, talk sort of like a support group. So I think the combination of those things, I think her and that group encouraged me to go deeper. And then so did the, the readings from Pema Chodron. Mm. So Pema's uh, words encouraged you to stay with it. Uh, and then it sounds like the, the therapy, and you mentioned a group as well. So was it individual or was it group? 
it was an individual therapist who also had a group of her individual people come together into a group. Yeah. So it was both. Yeah. And I, it sounds like both of those would be helpful, right? Where the individual work was helping to understand the context um, out of which, you know, certain patterns and certain relationship dynamics evolved, having therefore more understanding for yourself. Because I do find that when we really understand the context of someone's life, how they are makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. But then having that understanding, that insight, while that can be painful, that's also information that we can now work with. Um, and mm -hmm. it sounds like that's that was really helpful for you. Um, and the group component, that's that, you know, common humanity piece. And also, it probably helped to reduce some of the shame and to counter some of those really critical thoughts um, about yourself that were coming up since you had others kind of um, being able to see things in a more objective light. Yeah, I think that groups can be extraordinarily powerful. I mean, I got sober in 12-step recovery, and I've got lots of concerns with 12-step with recovery and lots of things I don't agree with. But at the fundamental level, where you've got one person who's an alcoholic working with another person who's an alcoholic or addict, and that's the fundamental building block of the whole thing. And then the other fundamental building block is like, a group of people that are all there helping each other is it, it was a brilliant invention. You know, I mean, there's so many things that they got right in building a 12 step program that kind of blows my mind. But that was such a big one was because, yeah, you go to this group and all of a sudden you get so many different things. I mean, one you get, like you said, you start to lose a little bit of the shame because it's like, Oh, everybody in this room did that. Everybody in this room felt that way. I thought I was the only one. Um, I mean, so that alone is, is so powerful, you know, not to mention the fact that then the people there have a solution, like, well, try this, do that. And that, you know, you've got also sort of a built in social life also. But yeah, I think that groups are extraordinarily powerful way to work through challenges in life. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, we're social creatures and um, it really helps, especially when we feel our worst, right? When we're most mm -hmm. depressed, when we want to hide and not be seen, when we just feel like you know, the worst human on earth, that's the time 
to reach out, you know, to at least someone, whoever we feel most comfortable with, um, but, you know, to just reduce that shame and to help us see ourselves as a whole human being. Yep. Yeah. Well, um, Eric, as we're sort of moving along in our time, I, I have one more question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious, and you know, you've said so much about your self-compassion journey. What have you found to be the most surprising aspect of your self-compassion process? I think probably just how useful it is. I think that recognizing that it works better because it's counterintuitive. It seems like, you know, if I'm really hard on myself, I'll get more done. You know, I'll be more successful in doing that. If I'm, you know, if I'm not hard on myself, then, um, you know, I'll just stay the way I am. I think the surprising part was how, how much more effective it is to be that way. Cause again, like I said, it doesn't, it's not the way most of us would think of it right off the bat. It makes sense. And there's lots of science to back it up. And my personal experience backs it up, but I think that's the most surprising part. All right. Well, that's wonderful. Um, can you, you know, just as we're wrapping up, um, say a bit about what you're currently working on, what's kind of exciting and happening. So the show, um, starting to ramp up coaching efforts again. So I'll start opening up and taking coaching clients here soon. We did an online course recently. We had it open for a week and now it's no longer for sale, but it'll come out again at some point called the one you feed stress reducer. Um, I've been leading some in-person workshops around habit change. We're working on an online course around habit change. So lots happening. Fantastic. Um, yes. And so where can um, people learn more about you? Oneyoufeed.net. So it's all spelled out. O-N-E-Y-O-U-F-E-E-D.net. Great. Thanks so much. And I will also link to that um, at the show notes of this podcast. Wonderful. All right. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And I wish you the best of luck with this important podcast. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Take good care. Have a wonderful day. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. You can hear this episode again, learn more about today's guests, and hear other inspiring interviews at CompassionPodcast.org. That's C-O-M-P-A-S-S-I-O-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot org. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to play an active role in amplifying its message, please take a moment to rate and review on iTunes and share this podcast widely with anyone who you think would benefit from a bit more self-compassion. You can help ensure that this podcast continues to be produced by making it more financially sustainable. Donate at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. 
Here, you can also unlock bonus content and compassion meditations guided by me. The music you're hearing behind me now is by the talented C. Burroughs. So can you let go of the light that you were all Can you get out from behind it? It's just a telephone. 